you would turn with me in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. Today we'll be looking at chapter 15. 2 Samuel chapter 15. The end of chapter 14, we see that Absalom issued a challenge to his father, King David. And it was very simple. Absalom basically said, either receive me or execute me. David restored his son to royal favor. So the end of chapter 14 ends with what looks like restoration and what it turns out to be is actually a recipe for disaster. Now Absalom is poised to begin his four-year plot to overthrow his own father as king. Chapter 15 can be divided into two main sections. The first section tells us about Absalom's rebellion in verses 1 through 12. And then the second section is David's exile in verses 13 through 37. First, we'll see Absalom utilize his political acumen to win over enough of Israel's people to make his conspiracy grow very, very strong. And then we'll see David fleeing with his loyal followers. So first, as we look at Absalom's rebellion, we've already seen from chapter 14, verses 25 and 20 through 27, that Absalom had just the right image. He looked so good. He was so attractive physically. Very, very handsome. We read in verse 25 of chapter 14. A beautiful full head of hair, verse 26. A very fine family, we read in verse 27, including a beautiful daughter named after her aunt, Tamar, Absalom's sister, whose life, we read, is now desolate, quote-unquote. Now, in chapter 15, we see that an attractive physical presence wasn't all that Absalom had. If you're able, would you please stand? I'm just going to read the first 12 verses of this chapter. And as we get into the second half, we'll be reading a lot of the verses individually to keep up. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to, might come to me, 
and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests. And they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city of Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, we see again right off the bat that there's more to an image than just physical looks. In verse 1, we see how Absalom worked on his image. Everywhere he went in Jerusalem, he was in a chariot. That's a spectacular sight. But he also had 50 men to run before him. Was this an Old Testament version of today's celebrity entourages? You bet. Nothing's changed in a lot of ways. This was a spectacular sight. The difference is that nobody had chariots. So it was even more of a sight to see. Everybody knew what he was doing, but they were still impressed. We think that we are so much better connected with people in our high-tech world, don't we? But think about this, and we need to understand this. In this huge, ancient city of Jerusalem, where most everything was in walking distance, think about that. I only know two people in this church that are within walking distance and even they don't walk. (laughs) The whole city was basically on top. People were on top of each other. So everyone was in the streets and nobody missed this. You didn't go inside and isolate yourself in front, of a, in front of a box to see what was happening. You just went outside in the streets, and it was all there in your face, all of it, all the time, 24 hours a day. 
Why were the people impressed? Because the strikingly handsome man was really, really important. Not only was he the the son of the king, this was the son who exacted revenge on his perverted half-brother who had raped Absalom's sister. And this was the son who had managed to come back to Jerusalem and was again enjoying what looked like the king's favor. This guy got things done. And he was really easy to look at. And he had an incredible vehicle. And masses of people at his beckon and call. Everybody got the picture? In verses 2 through 6, we see how Absalom then worked the crowd. He, had, he worked his image, and it worked. Now he, we learn how he worked the crowd. First, he was at the right place at the right time. Only the most difficult cases got through the system and to the king himself. And these were usually heard in the morning. So Absalom planted himself directly in the path of these already frustrated folks beside the way of the gate, verse 2. Second, he started up conversations with them. Hey, from what, where do you come from? What city are you from? Etc., etc. Third, He never met a plaintiff with whom he didn't agree. Did you catch that? Listen to Absalom as these people told him why they were there. He says, see, your claims are good and right. You you have a case. And fourth, he always followed that up with what? But there is no man designated by the king... To hear you. He's slick. He didn't have to chase ambulances to gain favor. He just stood there and the people walked by. Agreed with their need, their case. Made them think he was on their side. And he emphasized also a dissatisfaction with the system that all these people could and did identify with. And fifth, he presented himself as the man who could really help. We all know that's where he's going, trying to gain their favor. Look at verse 4. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with the disputer cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. See, Absalom didn't have to make these really hard judgments that the people really needed and they were trying to get. All he had to do was claim that he would. Important. Sixth and last, he would physically reach out to them. Taking hold of people, embracing them. 
This is the ancient version of shaking their hands and hugging them. And we see here, a lot of you have been to Israel. We're known here, at least most people in the South are known as warmer, as far as when you're around people than a lot of other parts of the country. You go to Israel and you don't know what warm is. They are talking to you here, and a lot of the people are hospitable. Uh, with the current political situation, it's not quite that way as much. But the area in general is a place where people have no trouble expressing what they're thinking whether you like it or not. And to be touched by somebody is really important here. It's reassuring. It gives people a sense of connection. He listened to their beefs, and he agreed with their cause, and he understood how frustrated they must be with the system. And who was always there at the gate, always, how long? For four years. What a man. And the result of this we see in verse 6. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Stole here refers to, it connotes deception. These people were deceived or tricked into believing that Absalom was a certain kind of man when he really wasn't that kind of man at all. In fact, the word that's used and translated as stole here literally means to take that which belongs to another without his consent or knowledge, and this word is restricted in its meaning to acts of theft that are done secretly. What's that telling us? In other words, the people didn't really realize what was going on. He was deceiving them. That was the purpose. This is deception. If David knew what was going on, and it seems like, how could he not? But what we're really asking, we, we again don't see him doing anything about it, do we? Maybe he just doesn't want to realize the repercussions. Maybe this way he doesn't have to, he thinks. So he works on his image. He works on the people, the crowd. And now we're going to see how he works on the king. Verses 7 through the first part of verse 9. When Absalom was planning, did you notice how long all this took? He could wait a long time. He planned the murder 
of his half-brother because of what he did. He planned that for a couple of years. And here we see four years now that he's planning this conspiracy to take over the crown. But after four years, he goes to David and he asked permission to leave Jerusalem and go to Hebron to pay a vow. And you might remember that Absalom was born in Hebron. David says, go in peace, verse 9. How ironic, how tragic. David gives Absalom his blessing in peace while the whole point of Absalom's trip is to consolidate this conspiracy. In verses 9 through 12, then, we see how Absalom then worked Hebron and the rest of Israel. Notice that David wasn't the only one in the dark. Verse 11 says that 200 invited guests of Absalom went along, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. You can almost see this happening in some room somewhere with Absalom and his head honchos with him, who in this city can we invite to go who is just clueless of what we're really doing? Then Absalom sends for Ahithophel. Remember who he is? Bathsheba's grandfather, who is now about ready to show his true colors. And And the conspiracy grew strong, And the people with Absalom kept increasing. We read there in verse 12. Now, let me read you a note I found that explains sort of this. Side by side, we have the truthfulness of God's word and the wickedness of Absalom's act. In other words, we know that God said that the sword would not depart from David's house. So we have that, God's word, and the wickedness of what Absalom is doing. And the latter actually fulfills the former. Yet Absalom will be held accountable for his wickedness. Peter says the same thing about what happened to Jesus in verse in Acts 2 verse 23. God ordained it and you are still guilty for doing it as he told the people. It's a mystery. It's not irrational. It's only kind of hard to solve. But that's what it is. It is what it is. Now we get to David's exile. In verse 14, David explains to all his servants why they must leave Jerusalem. Look at verse 14. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Now, what were they doing? Why were they leaving? Well, we just saw it. But you need to ask, why did David do this particular thing? Why didn't he just stay? 
Well, he's abandoning the city, which was kind. He has learned some things. Why was it kind? David decides to evacuate, not only to save himself and his men, but also so as not to expose Jerusalem to what? To the devastation which would take place were it really besieged and captured. It was also wise. If David remained in Jerusalem, how could he tell loyalists from the people who were wavering? By going into exile, he could be sure that only those who really supported him would accompany him. You see that? And that's why he left. So in verse 18, we see a very sad scene. David stopped at the last house in town. And look how this is written. All his servants passed by him. All the Cherethites, all the Pelethites, all the 600 Gittites. Hint. Cherethites, Pelethites... And the 600 Gittites were Philistines. Let that sink in for a second. These were foreign mercenary soldiers. So as David stopped, the people that went by him were all of his servants. But there was also all these guys from different places of Philistia. And those 600 guys, the Gittites, that's like David's personal little mercenary guards. These were tough, tough soldiers. And they're all with him. Do you see this scene? The real king is abandoning the throne and leaving the city. And the only people that support him militarily are foreigners. With a history that obviously had connected with him earlier when he had run off to try to hide there. This is incredibly ironic, but it's also completely typical with how God does stuff that we just do not expect. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. The rest of chapter 15 is nothing but amazing. In the midst of the anguish and travail of fleeing in exile we see some incredibly important things about how God works on David's faith. Incredibly important things about how God works on David's faith. First, verses 19 through 23. Then the king said to Ittai, the Gittite, that's hard to say a lot of times. Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday. Shall I today make you wander about with us since I go? I know not where. Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love. And faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, 
as the Lord lives, the Lord, and as my Lord the King lives, wherever my Lord the King shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, Go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. Who would expect this? Anybody? If you've never read this story, you're sitting there going, this is weird. This is a Philistine commander. And he's appointed as such in chapter 18 too, when David gets busy on the military side. And he turns out to be one of those unbelievably what? Precious gifts that come in the midst of a horrible time and just at the right time. In verse 20, we find out this man had just joined David. This man did. So David, in another act of, here's that word again, chesed, steadfast love, tells him not to endanger his own life, or who else? Look at the verse. 20. Or his little ones, verse 22. Or his men's. And go back, he says, go back and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai's answer is given in verse 21. As the Lord lives and as my Lord the King lives, wherever my Lord the King shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. You notice this is a double oath. One's enough. This guy issues an oath by God himself. The Lord, the word for Yahweh. Jehovah God. And David as God's authority and the rightful king. Whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. You know, this sounds like what Paul said in Philippians 1.20 about his devotion to Christ. But that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by death or by life. Paul. You like that? This is serious. Ittai is an island of fidelity in a sea of treachery, one commentator writes. The irony is clear. David's own son, whom David had loaded with undeserved kindness, was conspiring against him. While this stranger, who owed David nothing in comparison, was risking everything in David's cause. So contrast Ittai with Ahithophel, which will be made clear also in just a little bit. 
David's faith is supported by Ittai, a very special gift of God. Yep, ever had anybody pop out of nowhere in your life? Or maybe you hadn't seen forever in a time of complete distress, despair, come in and just do something or say something that just lifted you right back up to trust in God again? I think probably most of us have. And you don't forget that kind of experience. You don't forget it. Especially when you know who sent that person. Who moved that person to write that letter, make that phone call, show up at your door? True? So, faith is supported by the gifts of God. David's faith was. God knows exactly when we need encouragement. Exactly in the darkest. And abandoning the throne and leaving, that was the low point for David. So far in his life, that was it. Somebody he didn't expect. And I don't think the irony is lost on David, especially when you read the Psalms about all this. Second, in verses 24 through 29, we see faith is actually free in the will of God. In the way this account reads, two priests, Abiathar and Zadok, try to encourage David by bringing the ark along. But look what David tells them in verse 25 and 26. The king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. What? If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and its dwelling place. But if he, God, says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am, let him do to me what seems good to him. See what he's saying? He knows that God said there would, the sword would not depart from his house. So he does not know for sure that he will be reinstated. He's trusting God with it. And in trusting God with it, he is free to act and tell these guys, no, don't, don't do this. It's a demonstration. Having this with us is not guarantee of victory. Uh, he knows his history, doesn't he? From earlier. This is so, so, so important. David is not depending on the presence of the ark for a positive outcome. His possible restoration does not depend on whether he has the Lord's furniture. It depends on whether he has the Lord's favor. All rests on grace. He submits to God's, what? Sovereignty. Do we? Do I? You know, a really harrowing thought is to think about how much of your life has been wasted in battling God's sovereignty in your life. 
And if that doesn't humble you, I don't know too much else what will. But to be humbled by that thought and to see his hand in it all and to realize the grace that he's working in your life through it, it frees you up. So he tells him to go back. The king, in verse 27, the king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaaz your son and Jonathan the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until a word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem and they remained there. Listen, David now has the eyes and ears of two of his faithful men in the midst of the storm in Jerusalem. What did he just do? He let them go back to listen, to see. This is very, very interesting. This plan shows that submission to God's sovereignty does not stifle, but actually releases your resourcefulness. You don't just lay there and roll over. Complete submissiveness to God's sovereignty still permits you to use your head to work actively, but without the idolatry, which means doing it with the feverish anxiety of having to play God yourself. Liberty, relief, and energy are found especially in the darkest hours. In other words, faith in God and His sovereignty frees you up to act without all the feverish anxiety of trying to be God yourself and figure it all out and plan it perfectly. Do you see that? It's something, this is something we usually have to learn the hard way a bunch of times. And this doesn't necessarily get rid of what? The pain and the anguish and the sorrow which is what we really want to get rid of and what we're mad at God about, about not removing completely. But it does get rid of the feelings and emotions and, and the pain in the, in the sense that those aren't the primary goal. In other words, when you're free in God's sovereignty, your main desire is something higher than getting rid of the pain and the sorrow and just getting out of it. Your main desire is now giving honor and glory to God. And so you're willing to suffer, quote unquote, whatever he ordains to have come to pass in order for him to get the glory. That's what we see right here. Look at verse 30. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and they went up weeping as they went. 
David was free to act in God's sovereignty to implant two very important priests in the middle of Jerusalem, continuing their work there to be the eyes and the ears so he could tell what's going on. Not just that. We'll see that in a minute. But to also have voices in the midst of chaos as Absalom assumes some power here. Then in verses 31 and 37, we see that David's faith is encouraged by God's providence. We see a lot of characteristics of God on display here. Now David finds out about Ahithophel, who happens to be his most notable counselor. And he found out that Ahithophel turned to Absalom. This is betrayal times a hundred. The saying in Jerusalem, by conjecture, is something like this. If you had Ahithophel on your team, you had savvy, sharp advice. This guy knew what was going on. He knew how to read people and situations, and he knew how to counsel. And immediately David prays. He's betrayed, and immediately he prays. What does he say? Look at the end of verse 31. Well, let's read 31. And it was told David, here they are, Weeping, barefoot, head covered, all the people and just ripped up about what's happening. And then he hears that Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, Oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. You ever been where you thought was the bottom? Nothing worse could possibly happen. And then you hear that the man that you entrust with a counsel to run a kingdom and your own life just turned to your son, your enemy now, who is trying to take the throne. When one more straw, you know, we, we've got that saying, this is the straw that broke the camel's back. This is it. Now I have an excuse to sin, to not trust God, to get mad at him, to do whatever I want to do because he obviously doesn't care. O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. David does not go there. He prays to the Lord and he asks him something specific. And God does not answer his prayer the way he wants. Surprise, surprise. David prays and God answers by sending him Hushai. Not at all what David asked for. Verse 32, while David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with a coat torn and dirt on his head. And David said to him, if you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I'll be your servant, O king, as I've been your father's servant in times past, so now I will be your servant. And then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Oh, 
Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whether whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. Do you see what happened? In God's providence. The Lord didn't answer David's prayer as David asked. God didn't turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. But we're going to see in chapter 17 that God, as we'll see there, he turned Absalom, Ahith, uh, Abs- will, excuse me, I'm getting too excited. As chapter 17 will show, turned Absalom into a fool for rejecting Ahithophel's advice. And he did that through Hushai. In other words, we're going to find out at a crisis, key point. Ahithophel says, no, do this and do it right now. The opening's here. And Hushai comes in and says, no, maybe you better think about this more. Put some doubts. They end up waiting. That was Absalom's demise. God's ways are so creative. There's, there's no way. This is another example that we see so much of how God works in his providence in ways that we don't even consider, literally. So here's this guy with his coat torn and dirt on his head. And David is getting it. He seems to know that God's going to work. And he sends Hushai, a trusted friend, a confidant and a counselor, we find out, back to Jerusalem to attach himself to, to Absalom so Hushai can contradict the counsel of Ahithophel and then tell the other two faithful priests that are already there, Zadok and Abiathar, the priest, everything he hears. And that's why we read the last verse in chapter, 30, in chapter 15, verse 37. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. In other words, Hushai got there at exactly the right time. He was in place for his espionage mission as Absalom came back to town. Again, how many times have you seen God answer prayers in ways that totally surprise you? I don't know whether all of you know this, but it's time for a personal example. In the fall of 1999, I was looking for a job in Colorado everywhere. I've been let go at the camp. And since I taught 13 years before that, I wanted to go teach at a Christian school somewhere. I went to every Christian school in Colorado, I thought, that I knew about, that I thought would be good. Nothing worked all fall. I went to Texas, went back to the high school that I loved teaching in in Central Texas. And I checked out others all over creation, literally. That was my plan. 
Here I am. Crazy story. I could have never, I still, Marty and I just look at each other and going, what are we doing in Amarillo? And after 17 years, we're going, wow. Because sometimes when all this happens, you don't know what's going on. Or you can't see God's hand in it like, like it is. And it's later you look back and you go, oh, wow. And that's not the only thing that's happened in my life. And I'm sure you have lots of stories like that. In fact, if you look back, just the fact I've got a wife is an incredible story. Do you look back and see God's hand? Is that encouraging? And what do you learn about God? His sovereignty, his providence, his gifts and grace. That's what we see. That's what providence does, is God answers prayers in ways that totally surprise us. But a lot of times we don't recognize that at the point because it's not what we wanted. It's not how we wanted God to work it out. Sometimes we can't even see, really see what God did until much later. But doesn't that encourage your faith to see God use such ordinary means to accomplish such extraordinary purposes? Hushai wasn't some knight in shining armor riding on some white stallion across the Middle East desert. I can save you. He came in with look like a vagabond. The providence, this providence is heaped upon David along with the incredible freedom and energy found in submission to God's sovereignty. That's how it works. That's how God does. And the joyful surprises of God's gifts in the midst of our darkest hours. Some Philistine who says, no, I'm with you. And you go, where did you come from? And then you go, oh, tell me your story, but I, I really know the answer." Yes, David is suffering for his sins. There is a sword in his house. But he is nevertheless the rightful king of Israel. But the rightful king has been rejected and plods up the Mount of Olives. Do you realize this, what this picture is here? He's plodding up the Mount of Olives. He's weeping. He's barefoot with his head covered in verse 30. And this scene will be repeated on the Mount of Olives later, won't it? Luke chapter 9, Jesus coming into Jerusalem to the cross, and he weeps over Jerusalem. David obviously found out about that detail after his life ended. Let's pray. Oh God, again, we are overwhelmed by the mercy and grace of your gifts to us at 
times where you know we really need them. We are overwhelmed again to think of how incredibly bigger you are that we can't even describe uh, than what our feeble minds and hearts project you to be. You are sovereign. You made everything, which means it belongs to you. We belong to you. And then we see your providence and how you work out your will amongst the details and circumstances of life in ways that surprise us. And, oh God, we confess our faith is is so weak. And, oh Lord, we know your answer for that as you call us. Just seek your face. See who you really are in your revelation of your word. And we pray that you would work that in our, our hearts as you open our eyes. That you'd help us to just stop and see your hand in the midst of what looks like chaos all around us. And details and circumstances that we don't fully understand, God. And we ask that we could, if you will open our eyes to understand, but, but the other point is that we want to trust you when we don't. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand? I'm going to read Psalm 3 for our benediction. Psalm 3, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. O Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising against me, many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept, I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessings be on your people. Amen. You're dismissed. The smell in here is overwhelming. (laughs) 